Hello, Madison. Welcome to the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast, a show about clean tech, renewable energy, and the ways this rapidly growing industry is changing how we think about power. The Wisconsin Energy Broadcast is a project of the Perpetual Notion Machine, heard on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Now, here's your host, Heather Allen and Nan Fay. I'm in the studio with Greg Nemet from the La Follette School of Public Affairs. It's very exciting to have you here. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. And you have a new book out called How Did Solar Energy How Solar Energy Became Cheap. Yeah. 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 So um how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, so I've been working on solar um since I started grad school, so that was two thousand two. And I guess I was interested in the topic at the time because it was an interesting technology that seemed to have the potential to really be able to solve some of the energy problems we had. It was clean. Um, it was kind of an efficient. There were some elegant physics behind it. So there's a lot of kind of appealing parts of it, but it was always way too expensive. And the idea that we would actually use it on a big scale was considered in the distant future and probably might never even happen, but there were some interesting niche applications. So it was kind of an interesting study. But over time, I've been spending more and more time kind of looking at the cost of solar and just, I realized, one thing I realized is I was continually outdated. So I'd be like showing slides <laughs> in class from a couple <laughs> years ago and uh, I'd realize, wait a minute, that's not what things look like today. So even two or three years of kind of being behind on the data yeah. uh, was, was wrong because things were moving so quickly and people in the industry had a lot better sense of what actually was going on. So I started paying more attention to what was happening in the industry, on the ground. And then the other part is, you know, doing a lot of work doing statistical methods and econometrics of trying to understand the causes of how solar has become cheap. Um, and there was a lot that we learned from doing that work. But I also got the feeling that there were some other parts of the story of how solar kind of developed and got cheap that weren't coming out in the data because we couldn't measure it or it's just really hard to uh, explain or understand. And so this opportunity came up a couple years ago to write a proposal for a book project. And in that case, it would be using the data, but also just talking to people and talking to people all over the world and also taking kind of a long-term historical perspective on how this all happened. And yeah, so that's what I did over the last couple of years. That's great. That's great. And so you kind of mentioned what solar photovoltaic panels cost in the early days. So I, I think the first solar panel was invented in 1954. Is that right? Yeah. And right. what was the cost then? Yeah. 1954, they did a demonstration. There was a cover page in the New York Times saying this is the energy of the future and there's no reason it can't just like provide all our energy. And then three years later was the first uh, commercial sale of a solar panel. And it was for one of the first satellites called Vanguard 1 that was a response to the Russians launching the first satellite, um, Sputnik. So there was a space race in the 50s. And solar was a big part of that. So the Department of Defense and the Navy, who was running the satellite program for the U.S., realized that it was way better to use a tiny solar panel on their satellite to do the communications rather than a heavy battery that would be hard to lift off into orbit. So that was solar start, and that's how it got going early on. But that, those panels, those tiny, I would call them cells on the satellite, they cost, um, so the, the units here are megawatt hours. So megawatt hour is about what an average U.S. household uses in electricity in a month. So it's like your household monthly electric, electricity bill, and the average is about $120 today. If you would use the solar panels on that satellite from 1957, 
that electricity bill would have been three hundred thousand dollars. So oh my! It was, <laughs> you had to really need the electricity to be willing to pay. But you know, for the space race and the urgency that that came with, and doing it where there wasn't alternatives, um, you know, people were willing to pay that. But so they've come down a lot since then. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, so so we have the space program to thank, and I understand from from what I've um, read that. Uh, in fact, the energy industry was also the fossil fuel industry was actually using solar panels on their rigs because it was a convenient source of energy to power their projects. Exactly. Yeah, they needed navigation on their offshore oil rigs, and again, it was compared to lead acid batteries, and solar did better. So they were using them. The key thing there is ironic that it was the oil industry, but also helpful in that the oil industry was multinational and globalized pretty early on, and so in the '60s and '70s when this was happening. The solar technology was getting dispersed around the world because they were exploring in all kinds of uh, places in the world, and they were using solar in those places. So it started becoming an international uh, technology in part because the oil industry was was starting to use it. That's fascinating. Okay. So that kind of laid the groundwork. And then in the 70s, U.S. energy policy helped kickstart further investment. Yeah, big uh, event was in the fall of 1973 um, when uh, Israel and Egypt and Arab nations were at war and there was an oil embargo because the U.S. um, was supplying weapons to Israel. And so then there was this uh, blockade of shipments to the U.S. and that was the U.S. oil crisis and prices of oil increased by a factor of four within a few months. And all of a sudden energy went from being something that was always in the background that was something we valued, but no one ever really talked about. And there's no such thing as energy policy. But in the fall of 1973, there became energy policy. And with President Nixon, Project Independence, that we were going to have no imported energy by 1980, by the end of the decade. Uh, and then, so there was a lots of different bets that were placed. Solar wasn't a huge part of that plan. But there was a lot of R&D investment that went in, about $2 billion, especially in the late 70s. And so that just pulled in hundreds of people into the solar industry that had been working in the space program, uh, in the Apollo project in the 60s, and been working in the computer industry. And so all this knowledge and know-how and expertise from other sectors got pulled into the solar program, and that really pushed the technology ahead from mid-70s to the mid-80s. And I should make a note, we're airing this on Independence Day. So as we're thinking about fireworks and hot dogs, it's also fun to think about energy independence. Okay, great. But in the 80s, things slowed down. Yeah, big change in the 80s. A couple things. There was a, a political change in 1980 election. Ronald Reagan came in um, and said, really, we should only be doing research on basic research, so basic science. And a lot of the solar work was considered applied research, so kind of later stage. And the idea was that that was things the private sector should be doing so that we pulled the plug on a lot of projects. And so a few things happened. One is um, people left the industry, um, so they started working on the electronics industry and the IT industry that was pulling people in. So we kind of lost a lot of knowledge that way. And then second, other countries saw what was happening and were able to start a pick up on the technology. And so Australia played a role, um, but Japan really um, took over leadership in solar after 1985 when those budgets finally got cut. So in, in the story from the late 80s for the next 10 or 15 years is really about Japan. And it's interesting, Japan in the late 80s, you know, Everyone, it seemed like, was convinced that Japan was going to become the next economic superpower. Um, and I so, remember that. Yeah. I absolutely remember that. Yeah. We were and they thought were, they were our competitors. Yeah. yeah. And they had technological leadership, and it was kind of a symbolic passing of the torch that the U.S. was giving leadership up to Japan on solar. And so solar took it and ran with or Japan took it and ran with it. Um, they did two things that were interesting. One is um, the large 
consumer products conglomerates in Japan, like Sanyo, Panasonic, Sharp, who made TVs and uh, consumer electronics, they started using solar kind of as just um, a novelty. So they were putting it into watches and calculators, so tiny mm-hmm. solar panels. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kept the industry alive at a time when uh, energy prices had crashed and fallen, and so there wasn't this urgency anymore to do something about energy. Um, so the niche markets, those kind of tiny toy-like uh, applications, played a big role. And the other thing that Japan did in the mid-'90s was they started subsidizing rooftop solar panels. So from '94 to 2005, they had a program to give people about a 50% credit, or so you get half off on the cost of installing solar on the roof. So that was the first residential subsidy program. And that it took off and it did really well. The policy kind of innovation with that one is that they had this plan for declining rebate so that it would start high and over 10 years it would uh, it would fall and be zero after 10 years. So it was this idea that the subsidies wouldn't last forever, the technology would get better, and that the technology costs would go down so that you wouldn't need as many subsidies uh, after five or 10 years. So was Japan the first country then to subsidize rooftops, like yeah, residential rooftop that solar? that was the first national rooftop solar panel plan. Yep. That's fascinating. And so... How how broadly did it expand in Japan, um, rooftop solar? They put in – so at the time – these days it doesn't sound like that much. It was about 200,000 homes. Yeah. But at the time, that was gigantic. So it put the industry going from, you know, a little bit of tinkering and pretty hard to get companies actually um, – able to sell all the products that they were making. Right. But by the mid, by the middle of that program, by 2000, um, these big companies were starting to make big investments in large plants. So it started to bring um, what has really made a difference was uh, manufacturing scale. So right. starting to do things in the way that we make many, many, many like iPhones today or back in, in those days, uh, Walkman and things like that. Um, so doing solar in that same way where it was kind of like a mass produced uh, product. Oh, that that is that is a great story. And then, so I think the next big player was Germany and yeah. the Green Party and those renewable energy policies. Yep. Tell us about that. The yeah. So the the story of Germany is a policy window open. So there was kind of some um, tinkering around for quite a while. Some cities had some solar programs in the early 1990s, and then in 1998, the Green Party. Uh, became part of the governing coalition. So they got to have a couple of ministers, including the environmental minister, and they had for a long time been pushing a solar um, subsidy program. And so that was their opportunity to do it. And so within two years, they had started what was called the feed-in tariff and the renewable energy law in 2000. What is a feed-in tariff? Yeah. So that's where you get a guaranteed price for the electricity you produce. So you have this panel on your home and say that you're, you know, say around here, you're paying 10 cents per kilowatt hour about to buy electricity um, from MG&E. And so this was a way of saying, well, if you produce electricity, we'll pay you, say, 10 cents. Yeah. But here, in this case, they said, well, solar needs to get started, so we're going to give you an extra amount. And so they basically were paying more than two times the, say, MG&E equivalent rate. Okay. So instead of you buying... For ten cents, you were selling for twenty cents. So all so of a sudden, it's a very good deal. It was a really good deal to put solar panels in, and lots and lots of people did. Okay. Um, and so that really took the industry to another level. Um, and so it, it got a, it showed how popular solar could be, and it deployed a lot of technology. It really created an industry in Germany. Yeah. Created a lot of producers. The really crucial thing, though, is it again it, it got to the scale so you could have specialty producers. So these companies that were making machines to produce solar power. So it was the machines for slicing the wafers and assembling the panels together. So those became specialized machines just for solar. And that really um, allowed the industry to kind of increase production and and cut the cost as well. 
And at, at that point in time, where were most of the panels coming from? Were they coming from Japan to Germany? Um, Germany was the big producer Germany for a couple producing. of years. Yeah, first from Japan to Germany and then in Germany for a few years in the middle of that time. Um, but then around 2008, 2009, um, some Chinese companies had seen the German market earlier, like seven or eight years earlier, and were starting to scale up themselves. It took them a little while to establish that they could make panels that were of sufficient quality to mm-hmm. for Germans to accept. Um, but eventually they did, and they became the big supplier um, to Germany by 2008. They were the Chinese producers were the biggest producers in the world. And have been ever since, right? Yep. Yep. And now it's about 70% of panels made today come from China. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, who I You know, India is in the market too now, right? Because the new, I, I was reading that the new tariffs, um, there's a new sort of trade war situation going on with India and the solar panels are going to be taxed that are coming out of India. But I don't know how large a producer the Indian government, yeah, the I, Indian country. I mean, there's a few countries, including India, that have become big installers, like gigawatt yeah. scale, so a billion watts per year. So India's one, Egypt's one now, Turkey's one. So these are new countries that weren't on the map a couple of years ago. Um, but I think what's happening now is there's this opportunity for lots of countries to get into production. And I, I really think it's partly these machines that the Germans made. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this innovation in 2004, 2005 called Turnkey, where these companies would create an assembly line. And you, all you had to do was buy the assembly line and then bring it to your company in China. And then people would come with it and help you set it up and stay for a couple months to sort optimize it. Sort of build it. the manufacturing equipment yeah. and the plant all together Yeah, for you. so you didn't need to actually have a lot of know-how. You just needed to know the market and know the local uh-huh. way things worked. And so that now is happening in India and Turkey and some other places where um, you can get some uh, machines installed pretty quickly and easily uh, and then start setting up production locally. That is fascinating. Yeah. That is fascinating. And so... How would you describe where we are today? We just did a show a couple like a couple months ago about um, solar farms here in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were major announcements in April that uh, an additional 500 megawatts have been approved. Richland County is a smaller project that people aren't that aware of. It's 50 megawatts, and then of course Badger Hollow in Iowa County, and the Two Creeks project in Manitowoc County. So, why are we seeing solar farms at a large scale being proposed and approved across Wisconsin? It's, I think it's been pretty amazing that that's happening. And I yeah. think, um, you know, I started this book project a couple of years ago with the idea of, um, you know, calling it How Solar Got Cheap, kind of having in mind that it was pretty cheap two years ago because there were some pretty stunning contracts from really sunny places like in the Middle East that were cheaper than we've ever seen before. But thinking, okay, well, if that happens for a couple more years, then it'll be cheap in other places as well. And that's happened, but like beyond what I would have expected. I, I I would not have predicted we'd be doing utility scale. So these are projects like you've described that mm-hmm. are as big as, you know, some of the power plants around here, like the West Campus Cogen facility on the UW campus is 150 megawatts. And mm-hmm. those projects you're talking about are some are larger than that. So we're talking about really big yeah. projects happening in a place that is about a factor of two less sunny than, say, Arizona, the sunniest part of but the U.S. But still sunnier than Germany. Yeah, yeah, By right. A long so, shot. Yeah. right, and that's an interesting thing is that where you see solar going in, it's not necessarily in the sunniest places. There's other factors that have led uh, right. countries and places to adopt solar. But yeah, so that it's happening here uh, in a state that doesn't have the best sunshine and the best resources kind of shows, uh, I think, that the technology's like been proven, so it doesn't seem as risky as it used to be. Um, that there are serious 
companies that are able to mobilize and do something on a big scale like right. that. Uh, and also that the costs are, you know, competitive. I mean, there's still subsidies. So you get a 30% federal tax credit if you do a solar project. And those are scheduled to ramp down over the next few years. So maybe there is some... Urgency uh, in the yeah. marketplace. Oh, right. yeah. yeah. I definitely think we're, we're seeing like a little bit of a crush because I think next year the tax credit ramps down for commercial and residential customers to 26% and further after that. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that tax credit is spurring a lot of, yeah. especially a lot of activity in 2019. Yep. People, that gets things going. People are pumped. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that's a reason to do things now rather than waiting later. Um, but I think the other thing, too, is that some of the challenges that have been also thrown at solar. So one is it's always been too expensive, mm-hmm. but that's starting to be not true anymore. Um, the other challenge um, is that, you know, it's not sunny all the time. We have things like winter and night and seasons. Um, and so that uh, that has also been a reason to say solar is not reliable. But I think as you start looking around the world and seeing places where you've got like five or eight percent of large countries' electricity coming from solar, and they're not having blackouts, they're finding ways to manage it. And there's things you need to do, like make the grid more flexible, maybe build some more transmission. Here, we're actually talking about building battery storage. That was also a similar story to solar that wasn't even conceivable a few years ago that you would do that on a large scale unless you had to or some weird niche application. But now we're doing it by choice, by choice instead of doing it over like a a gas plant and certainly over a coal plant. So yeah, it's pretty stunning how um, solar's gotten to the point where even in Wisconsin we're talking about doing it uh, on a large scale. I mean, there's still challenges to come. We have to worry about how do you deal with lots of renewables on a grid. But, you know, I, I think those are things where we will work on it and innovate and learn from other places and, and work it out as it goes along. So, yeah, I think it's it's pretty positive to see that. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of just something you said earlier. So that you were having to, you know, update your materials regularly as you're presenting yeah. to your students as the costs of solar come down. Um, I regularly do, in my day job, I regularly do presentations about just the industry overall and, and oftentimes the utility commitments to going renewable or carbon, carbon-free carbon in their electricity production. And I am regularly updating my spreadsheet on which utilities have made which commitments because they're regularly one-upping each other. And it's wonderful to see, but I, you know, I'll be in the middle of a presentation I'm like, oh, I have to update that. MG&E just went 100% <laughs> or made a commitment to go 100%. So, um, so it's happening... It's happening in the at the corporate level. It's happening in the industry as they're developing the product, the developers, and then also the utilities. They're all moving at this lightning speed, yeah. um, which is great to see. Yeah. So what does the future look like, in your opinion? You know, Knowing what you know about the history and, and where we've been, how do you see things going in the future? Well, I, I think it's this um, combination of multiple kind of technologies coming together that allows us to move to this energy system. You know, in my class, I talk about having a goal of wanting an energy system that's cheap, that's clean and reliable. And a lot of the conflicts we've had in the past is there's often trade-offs among those different goals. It's starting to look like because of some of the innovations in technology that we can start to have cheap, clean and reliable all together. And it's not just one technology, it's solar, but complemented by wind and then getting the flexibility you get from batteries. And then, you know, grid technology, like having sensors on the grid, having information flowing around the grid, that and digitalization happening, that also allows us to be much smarter about how we move electricity around and how we deal with these intermittent resources because of clouds or wind coming on and off. And so that helps. And then 
I think the other part is having policy that gets modernized so that it starts to take into account the costs of pollution, whether it's air air quality or climate change, um, and then also how we regulate utilities. You know, the the public utilities commissions and public service commission we have here and around the country, you know, those are really set up in the early 1900s, and a lot of them were designed based on how the electricity system looked like in the 1920s, right. which was large central station, so have a regulated monopoly in an area and have the utility commission decide what the rates would be. Right. Um, and now it doesn't seem like that's really would be the way you would design a system today. There's a lot more reason to have multiple producers. There's less of a justification that there should be a monopoly. There certainly needs to provide reliable service and maintain a distribution system. Um, but I think modernizing how we regulate electricity would allow us to take advantage of the opportunities that come from um, all these technologies that are emerging right. and crucially how they could work together. Right. I, I mean, I, it, it makes me think of how it seems like the Public Service Commission's key values are reliability, safety, and access to everyone. Right. But I think that as you're describing, that the public is shifting to, they still want a reliable grid. They want it to be a safe grid. But since we've proven that that can be done, we also want a clean grid. And so at some point that has to be woven into how we make decisions, because as you said, there's just a lot of sensors and controls and other technologies that can allow us to be more nimble and use these, these new um, technologies and also come up with new ways to pay for the solutions, you know, because yeah. you just you can't buy and sell electricity and make power plants the way you used to. Um, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother show. But yeah. OK, so yeah. um, and so I read that you recommend that in the next few years we focus on investing in R&D, building markets and then subsidizing new technologies to bring them to scale. Yeah, if we need more than solar, and you know, for the book I was also starting to look at batteries too, but then mm -hmm. that was when I was kind of realizing, well, I think batteries are already so far along that mm -hmm. um, they're kind of, they're moving very fast. So yeah. I have less to say about that. But if there are new um, technologies that come along, and I think we will need new technologies to you know, deal with the, the need to decarbonize the grid and not have, right. um, not have climate change as much, um, so, and we've got these goals of being zero emission by 2050 in a lot of places now. So to do that, I think we'll need more than just what we have today. And so we'll have to keep working on developing and designing new technologies. And so, yeah, I, you know, what comes out of the work I've done in the past on innovation is that the most successful innovations are ones where you couple a technological opportunity with a market opportunity. So the technological opportunity is something where the science and R&D can help, where you have educated and train scientists and engineers that are working on improving technology. And then the market side is the demand that pulls those things into the market. And that can be policy, um, but it could be the way, like you say, we set up markets with the Public uh, Service Commission. It could be uh, putting a price on carbon, those types of things. All those types of things are creating a market that otherwise wouldn't be there. And so that's, that's kind of what we need for bringing new technology into the market, taking advantage and creating technological opportunities, and then having market opportunities that can pull those innovations into the market. And so we need to be working on both ends and then the coupling when you have that uh, connection between the, the science and the technology and then what, what markets want, that's, that's when you can really have things uh, take off. Yeah. And we've seen that with solar and, and to some extent batteries too. So that's, that's what we need more of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor Nemet. This was a wonderful conversation and really couldn't have come up with a better topic for, for Independence Day. So yeah. thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to WORT and the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast. Hope you enjoy this happy 4th of July.